So for all three chapters, Luke is giving Theophilus and us clear evidence, clear evidence that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. However, with all of these credentials that we've already looked at, with all of these proofs that we're still going to see, there is still one pending question. And the question is, can Jesus save us from our sins? And think about that question because, of course, Luke is going to answer that as we go through this, this gospel. But even as we go through Luke chapter 4 this morning, Luke answers this very clearly because he conquers the devil, he conquers his temptation, he conquers sin. And he's clearly showing us what he's wanted to show Theophilus all these years ago, that he is indeed the very Son of God. So that, remember the main point of this passage that we're going to look at shortly is showing us that Jesus is the righteous Son of God who is able to overcome Satan, who is able to overcome sin. And that is the main point of Luke chapter 4, these temptations which we are going to be looking at at a moment. But of course, his example is instructive to us. How he overcame these temptations is instructive for us to learn from so that we can overcome temptation. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these three temptations one by one to see how we can overcome these similar temptations. So reading from Luke chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 13. Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. That's a lie in case you don't understand that, okay? The devil's lying. Surprise, surprise, okay? Put there in your Bible, a lie. <laughs> Verse 7, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And He took Him to Jerusalem, and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and all their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, let's pray before we study the word together. Father, we do ask you this morning for wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time as we meditate on your word. We ask, Lord, for your help as the word is declared to us. As I proclaim it, I ask, Lord, please, may none of your words fall to the ground today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So throughout world history, there have been many epic battles. There has been the, the Battle of Waterloo in Europe that many 
historians have written much about. There's been uh, civil wars, battles like the, the Battle of Gettysburg in the U.S. There's been World War I, there's been World War II battles like the invasion of Normandy and so on. And there have also been some epic battles between individuals. And we read similar battles in, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament between David and, and Goliath. And of course, there's many other battles that I'm sure you could name as well. However, all of these battles really pale in significance to the supreme epic battle that is happening here in our passage between Jesus and the devil. Satan, who is called the devil in the Bible, was originally a holy angel created by God. He rebelled against God because he wanted to make himself like the Most High God. He wanted to be worshipped rather than worshipping the Creator. We see that in Isaiah chapter 14. And as a result of his sin, Satan was cast out of heaven along with one-third of, of all the angels as a result of their rebellion against God. Well, sometimes afterwards, God created Adam and Eve. And again, Satan succeeded in tempting them to sin against God. And the result of Adam's fall is that all of his descendants, including you and, and me, with the exception of Jesus Christ, of course, have now been born into this world in sin. The world is corrupt. The world is broken. And we are born into this slavery of, of sin. However, God had determined to save a multitude of sinners for himself. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, the Lord had planned all of this. And his plan was to send his son, his son, Jesus, to save sinners by means of perfect obedience to God. And of course, Satan in the background was determined to spoil God's plan, to thwart God's plan of salvation. And right here, we see one of his epic attempts to get Jesus to sin. If he could get Jesus to sin, then Jesus would be a sinner. He would be disqualified from giving his life as a ransom for our sins. So Satan did everything he could at this point to get Jesus to sin. And apart from the epic battle between Jesus and Satan during the Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion, there is no other battle as epic as the temptation of Jesus right here in Luke chapter 4. So my first point this morning is the preparation for battle. And we're going to look at the first temptation, which is here in the first few verses. Remember, in chapter 3, Jesus is being baptized. So this is happening after his baptism. He, after this, he has been led into the wilderness by the, the Spirit of God. And for 40 days, Jesus is fasting as he draws near to the Father. This is in preparation of his, his public ministry. So we read there in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now notice Jesus prepared for battle by being full of the, the Holy Spirit. That is, he was, he was saturated with the, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended on him to mark out the fact that he is under the full power of the Holy Spirit and that he is indeed the Son of God. But notice here, he set aside the independent use of his deity. All of his powers that he had at his disposal, he put aside and submitted himself to the work of the Holy Spirit. He submitted himself to God's will to be done in his life by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God we see fills him here. The Father has commended him at the, the baptism we've already seen. The prophet John has proclaimed that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've seen that. And the people of Jerusalem and Judea have been prepared by a baptism unto repentance for his coming. A lot has happened to the leading up to of this, this one event. The Lord Jesus is very aware of his divinity. He is very aware of his divine nature. And he is fully aware of his divine mission. He understands this. His sacred humanity is under the full power of the Holy Spirit. He has waited for 30 years for this day in the obscure village in Nazareth. And now he has had his official launch at his baptism in the, in the River Jordan. And he is at the highest point of, of anticipation, ready to enter into his ministry. And in the Spirit, he engages the devil. And notice, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. That seems a little strange, doesn't it? But the Spirit is leading him into the wilderness, into devastation. Remember, the wilderness was not, was not a nice place to be. People didn't live there because it wasn't a nice place to live. It was a place of scorpions, a place of snakes, a place of wild animals, a place that was uninhabited, that never had places of shelter. Nothing would grow in the desert, a desolate part of this Judean desert that rose from the Dead Sea, 1,500 feet below the, the sea level to Jerusalem. Um, it was a dangerous place. And Jesus is there for 40 days. And for all those 40 days, he is in conflict with the devil. He is in conflict with the devil. This didn't just happen over one day. This is 40 days. So notice, there's some application for us here at this point. Jesus is led there by the Spirit of God. And the first thing that Luke wants to draw our attention to is an important truth about God's providence. Jesus is not in the wilderness by chance, by accident. Jesus is not someplace where he's not supposed to be. Who has led Jesus in the wilderness? It tells us it is the Spirit of God who has led Jesus into the wilderness. And this should encourage some of us. You know, some of you have been faithfully trying to serve our Lord. You've tried to do exactly what you know He would have you to do according to His Word. And yet you have found yourself in, in deep trials. You've found yourself in, in problems and, and heartbreaks and, and heartaches. And you've wondered, have I done something wrong? Have I done something wrong? If only I were in the, in the center of God's will, this wouldn't be happening to me right now. And here's the Lord Jesus doing exactly what the Lord would have him do. And he's not in a nice place. He's in the desert. He's facing this great trial 
and temptation. Not in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve faced their trial, but in the desert. Exactly where God wants him to be. Here's the lesson. Sometimes we are right where the Lord wants us to be. You know, trial and temptation, of course, is right there as well. We must never forget that. You know, there are some people who say, you know, if you become a Christian, all your problems will be gone. Or they will say, if you become a Christian, you'll become healthy, wealthy, and and prosperous. That's not true. Our Lord's own experience makes it clear that this is not true. You know, do not think when you encounter problems, it's necessarily because you, you are not doing what God would have you to do. Because sometimes right in the middle of doing precisely what the Lord would have you to do, various trials and testings are there. The Lord Jesus did, and if it happens to the Master, should we be surprised that it happens to His disciples? There's a great message of God's providence in this passage that just, just because you love the Lord Jesus, just because you're following the living God, just because you're trusting in the gospel doesn't mean that you will not have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't mean that you will not have to face trials and tribulations and testings. What it does mean is that even when you're there in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is there with you. So the battle goes on. Verse 2 says that when they had ended, he became hungry. This battle is so intense. And Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. Remember this. And during that 40 days, he's, he's not even aware of his hunger. He has no sense of his, of his own hunger here, except now at this point. You know, some of us get hungry after two hours after having breakfast. But Jesus is totally focused on this conflict where the Lord has brought him. He is so focused on the enemy. He is so focused on the, the will of God. And he's so focused on doing what is right that there's no thought of anything human or mundane. It is this conflict alone that engages him. So for 40 days, the the onslaught goes on and on. And it is the preparation, I believe, in a sense, for the, for the final battle, which we'll see later on in the Gospel of Luke. But for 40 days it goes on, and Satan is unsuccessful. He is unsuccessful in these 40 days. As John, in his Gospel, tells us, Satan has no claim on Jesus. And there was nothing in Jesus. There was nothing in his nature as the God-man to which a devil could could hook a temptation and make it successful. But nevertheless, after 40 days of struggle is over, Jesus, who is a man, fully man, fully God, feels hungry. He feels hungry. And Satan senses in that hunger a vulnerability, a chance, an opportunity to make Jesus sin. And we see what happens. Three temptations that Satan devises that are the most ruthless and really the most clever. And he keeps them until he finds in Christ this, this moment of vulnerability. But there's a point of application here as well. Notice, Satan hits Jesus with this temptation at the precise moment that Jesus was hungry. And he always works like that, doesn't he? He hits you when you are down. 
He bides his time until you are vulnerable. And then he moves in with this subtle suggestion of evil. I once heard a godly man tell of how he had been ministering in India for a month on his own. And on his return flight over the Atlantic, an attractive lady was especially kind to him, giving him a lot of attention. And being weary from traveling, of course he appreciated and he had, to, he had to spend the night in Washington, D.C. before he caught his final flight home the next morning. But as he went to get off the plane, he went to greet this lady and thank her for, for her kindness. And she responded by inviting him to her apartment for the night rather than going to his hotel. He was tired. He had been away from his wife for a month. And here was a very attractive young woman offering herself to him in a situation where no one would know about it. This was the opportune moment for, for Satan to hit. By God's grace, the man declined the offer, but he said that there was a brief moment in which it sounded very inviting. So be alert when you are vulnerable, because that's when the devil attacks. My second point is there in verse 3 and verse 4. The pattern of battle. And the first temptation is a temptation to distrust God's love. To distrust God's love. And when the devil speaks, he starts from a point of truth, but it's a partial truth. And very subtly and very deceptive, he twists this. Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If, um, in other translations, and probably a better translation is the word since, since you are the Son of God, this is the truth. God the Father had just announced it there, isn't it, in the, in the River Jordan. Everybody knew. The first three chapters of, of Luke are all about the, the deity of Christ. God himself has said this. But the devil doesn't question the, the deity of Jesus. Demons don't question the deity of Jesus. Now, only the liberals, the foolish, debate whether there is a God. But notice here, Satan comes to him, the devil comes to him, the slanderer. The accuser. And he says, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Command these stones to become bread. Now, at first glance, you, you look at this and you say, well, hmm, how is this a temptation? Now, well, what type of temptation is this? This is, it's not wrong to, to eat bread, um, Jesus wasn't being tempted to be, to be gluttonous. Bread itself, eating bread is, is not sin, sinful. He had the, the power to, to, to change those rocks into bread. He certainly did. So what was wrong with this? What's wrong with this? this he wasn't tempting him to overeat. You know, he wasn't tempting him in the ways that, that we understand. Hunger itself is not a sin, Okay. So this is not a temptation either to show off because there isn't anybody around that Jesus can show off to. This is just between Jesus and the devil. So what's going on with this temptation? What is, what is going on? Well, this is a temptation for Jesus to question the love and the goodness and the provision of God his Father. It's a temptation for Jesus to take into his own hands the provision of what he needs. 
and not to trust God's provision of what he needs. Now, this is a temptation for Jesus to contradict everything that he's been doing during his 40 days of fasting. Now, the fasting is supposed to, to drive home to anyone who is fasting that it is God who provides for us, isn't it? That's why we fast, to depend on him, to rely on him more. He's the one who gives. He's the one who provides. And Satan is saying, you don't need to, to trust God. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. Look, you're hungry. Your father's not here. Surely, if your father loved you, he would have spread a meal for you after these, these 40 days. So here's what you do. Just turn that stone into bread. I know you can do it. You've got the power to do it. You can do miracles. I know what you are able to do. Your father's forgotten about you. Maybe God doesn't love you as much as you think he loves you. He doesn't care about what you need. Just do it yourself. Make it yourself. He's tempting Jesus to question the goodness of God. That's what he's doing here. What is under attack is not the identity of Jesus so much as the trustworthiness of God. I hope you see the application. We've all been tempted in this era, haven't we? We've all been tempted to say things aren't the way you think they should be. I'm sure you've said before, if God really loved me, I would never have wound up in this situation. If God really loved me, I wouldn't have married this, this terrible person. If God really loved me, I wouldn't have wound up with this illness. I wouldn't have this sickness. If God really loved me, my, my kids wouldn't treat me this way. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be living with such disappointments. If God really loved me, He wouldn't have put me here in this, in this, in this country with all these difficulties. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be the way that it is. I wouldn't have gone down this path. I went down that, is, that has locked me into this situation, into this, into this career, into this, into this family. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be missing the things I think are so important that I need. If God really loved me, He'd enable me to do the things for my family that I'm unable to do. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be bearing so many burdens. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be asking why do the righteous suffer and, and the wicked prosper. And we could go on and on and on, isn't it? This rings a bell, I hope, to you. This is the formula that Satan has used since the beginning of time. This happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan had come to Eve and he asked her a question. And the question was, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He was tempting her to doubt the trustworthiness of God. She was being tempted the same way that Jesus is being tempted right here. Do you mean to tell me that God told you you couldn't eat of these, of these beautiful trees in this garden? Come on, Eve. Know that that's not what God's command was. It was one tree that you were not to eat of. But why does Satan put it that way? He's taking a truth and he's twisting it. He's trying to put this thought into Eve's heart 
that God doesn't care about her, that God is spiteful, that God is not good, that God is not generous, that He's unreasonable, that He doesn't care about her best interests. He tempted her the same way He's tempting Jesus. Do you see what Satan is doing here in the wilderness as well? Take, eat. He's tempting Jesus with food. Take, eat. You need this. Your father's not providing it for you. He's not good. He's not trustworthy. He's not worth living for. He's not worth dying for. Live for yourself. How do we overcome this very real temptation? How do we overcome this very real danger to doubt God's love for us? Well, we see in this passage the same way as Jesus overcame it. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written. Notice that. Please put a, a circle around it. Underline that. If the Lord Jesus takes Satan to the Scriptures, if the Lord Jesus takes Satan to the Bible to rebuke him, surely the, the Scriptures are needful for us to do the same, isn't it, folks? To speak to ourselves. We may never have an encounter with Satan. I doubt any of us ever will do that. But we need the Scriptures to speak truth to ourselves when we are being tempted by all the flesh, the world, and the devils. Look what he says. It is written. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. In the Gospel of Matthew, he adds the rest of that verse. He says, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what Jesus is doing here is tempting the Scriptures. Uh, sorry, he's quoting the Scriptures. He says, it is written. He is quoting what has already been in the Old Testament. And what he's quoting here is Deuteronomy chapter 8. We read that this morning. He's quoting verse 3 specifically. And Deuteronomy is the, the second law. It's a repetition of the first law, but it's the second law. It's the law by which man lives. It's a reiteration of the Mosaic law that God gave. So let me read to you again what, what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. Notice the whole commandment, not just some of the commandment, the whole commandment. And we can't pick and choose which, which parts of the commandment, folks. It says the whole commandment, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is quoting the Scriptures. And so the Lord here in Deuteronomy is saying to Israel, the key to life, the key to a future the key to the land is not bread, it's not military power, it's not obedience. Sorry, it is obedience. It is obedience. You obey my law, and I'll make sure you have everything that you need. 
I'll make sure that you're fed. I'll get you to the land. I'll give you the kingdom. Obedience to my law is more important to you than the food that enters into your mouth. Jesus understands that. And that's why he quotes these verses. And here's Jesus, the same response to Satan. I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that proceeds from my Father's mouth. His will, God's will, is more important. It's more necessary than food. And so Jesus resists the temptation of Satan. Satan says, take, eat that bread. Take, eat that fruit. Because God is not going to provide for you. You do it yourself. Because he's not good. And Jesus says, no. No. I choose to live by the words of my father's mouth. Not by your mouth. I choose to believe his word. And his word says that he is good. His word says he will provide. His word says I can trust him. I will not take and eat. What Jesus is doing here, he's affirming his absolute confidence in God. And he's affirming what Paul says. Remember, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He knows God will meet every need. He has no question about that. He has no doubt about that. He will obey And he will obey according to the terms of the scriptures. Not according to his terms. According to God's law. He will obey. And he will enjoy the blessings that come from obedience. And Jesus is saying, that's how you live. That's how we live. By obeying God. And God provides everything that we need. I'm not going to distrust God for that because I know my God. He knows his character. Scriptures tell us, Matthew tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will then be added unto us. He has a plan. Folks, it's a plan for good. It's a plan for glory. And it's a plan for a crown. But the path of that may be full of trials, may be full of tribulations, may even be full of sufferings, isn't it? But that's God's plan. We need to embrace it. We don't need to question it. Because God has a plan even to take us through those trials. Even to take us through those tribulations. God has put us there for a reason. God is good. Don't doubt that. God is kind. Don't doubt that. You may have troubles in your life. Don't doubt God's goodness to take you through those troubles. Don't bargain with the devil to avoid those sufferings. It's God's plan to put us through those sufferings, folks. And if somebody tells you otherwise, he is lying to you. Being a Christian does not mean that your life will be without pain, without suffering. Being a Christian means that we will face these trials. But being a Christian means we have God to help us face those trials. 
testing of our faith builds strength, folks. It builds faith, and it builds the character that God wants for us to display Him to the world around us. These trials make us trust God more. These trials make us depend on Him more. They make us love God more. They make us pray more, isn't it, folks? We need to stay obedient. We need to trust His love. We need to trust His character. We need to trust His plan. One commentator I read this week said that one of the greatest crises in the church today is the crisis of unbelief in the Word of God. It is one thing to believe in God. It is another thing to believe God. Christ triumphed over Satan because he believed God. He trusted God. He put his life in the hands of God, and he was victorious. This is a great, a great quote. And as we close this morning, let me ask you this question. Do you believe God? No, I'm not asking you if you believe in a God. Now, James tells us that even the devils believe in God. The question is not about his existence. The question I'm asking is, do you believe God? Do you believe that what he says in his word is true? Do you believe God when he says he will provide? Do you believe God when he says you can trust me? Do you believe the scriptures when they say that he is a good father? Don't be tempted to believe the lies of the devil. Trust his word. Obey God and enjoy the blessings that come from obedience. Let's pray. Father, how easy, Lord, it is for our minds to wonder. How easy it is for our minds to believe lies. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for this, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, where we have believed the devil rather than you. Even though we know what is true, even though we know that you're a good father, we have, we have sinned and fallen into this temptation to believe that we need to do and we need to provide and we need to look after ourselves because nobody else will. But you don't love us. Forgive us, Lord, for these terrible lies that we have believed. Father, we pray that you would help us just as we have seen Jesus overcome these temptations. Help us, Lord, to, to treasure your word. As a deer pants for the water, may our soul long after you, may our soul long after your word, that we would know your word, that we would memorize your word, that we can remember your word in these terrible times of trial and temptation, that we would not sin against you, that we would believe that you are good and that what you're doing for us is for our good, even though it may be difficult. May we trust your character. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.